So good morning, everyone, and I'm happy to see so many people here. And for those of you who don't know me, my name is Gil Fransdell. And I thought that uh, while we're still waiting for people to come in, we can kind of start informally rather than formally. And I thought it might be nice to find out uh, who we are a little bit as a group. And um, I was wondering uh, how many people have done some kind of practice uh, with the, the, all four of the Brahma Viharas before? So it's only a small group. And, and how many of you have done uh, some kind of practice on metta? And how many people have done uh, neither? It was, this is completely new, this topic here. Uh-huh. And are those people who this... Uh, and is there anyone who, for whom uh, uh, vipassana meditation is new, mindfulness meditation is new? Uh-huh. So for those of you who mindfulness meditation is new, um, well, this is not a mindfulness uh, w- weekend, but... Uh, the way we teach here a lot uh, is that the Brahma-viharas, these four qualities we'll be talking about this weekend, um, I think are often are taught kind of on the foundation, on the base, or as complements to mindfulness practice. So there might be things that you don't quite understand because we keep making references to mindfulness practice. And um, if you have, if it's, you could maybe ask questions, especially you can come up and ask the teachers if there's something you don't understand, if we make reference to things which, um, you know, are not clear. And um, also, when I, at some point, sitting up here, kind of looking, can you hear me okay? Is this the volume fine or too loud? Or Okay. Um, when I was sitting up here, uh, looking out at you all, um, I had the kind of wish that actually we sat more in a circle, but I don't think it's so practical being so many of you. In a smaller group, sometimes I'll have people sit in a circle. But I think the reason for today is that um, I think with, when, you, when we talk, when we practice together and do the Brahmi Viharas, it's even more so that uh, we're all in the boat together of practice. There isn't, I don't think there should be too, much, too strong, too much of a distinction between a teacher and the students that, um, you know, I'm certainly not an expert on these things. Uh, I don't know if anybody can be called themselves an expert, but it's something that we do together, and uh, we explore together and, and develop together. And I've learned a lot about the Brahma Viharas um, from my students. Uh, so, you know, who's the student, who's the teacher then? So anyway, so, so I just maybe you might, might keep that in mind. Also, because the Brahma Viharas are about our, our relationship with each other, and there's a tendency, you know, mindfulness sometimes can be taught in such a way that it seems like a very personal, individualistic practice, and uh, it doesn't have to be. But sometimes that's maybe the impression people get. But I think the Brahma Viharas are very much about our relationship to our friends, our family, our society. And so sitting in a circle would have allowed us to feel that connection more. Right now you're all facing me. And that's very nice, you know, I guess, 
you know, for me to get your kind looks and whatever, kind regards. Uh, but really, uh, you, might, you might in your mind's eye or, your, or in, your, in your mind uh, imagine that we're all sitting here together in a circle and we're all in it together for, this, for today and for this weekend. So as we start now, since we're not going to get in the circle, I guess, uh, what you might do as a beginning is just take uh, a minute or so to look around and see who you're here with. When I practiced, um, you know, I did uh, many years of Zen practice before I was introduced to Vipassana. And when I was um, introduced to Vipassana in Southeast Asia, the way that it was primarily taught there was as an isolated practice or just a solid, single kind of single focus practice, only on mindfulness practice. And most of my teachers in Southeast Asia didn't talk much about loving-kindness, metta, or equanimity, or sympathetic joy, or compassion. We were just primarily focusing on vipassana. And I did long retreats in Asia, and um, I thought it was one of the secrets, uh, a personal secret, or kind of a secret about the practice of mindfulness, that um, it elicited all this joy and all this love. And I, I didn't think I could go to my teacher and tell him that I was sitting there with all these feelings of love, because, you know, it was, it was too, I don't know, it wasn't, you know, this plain, matter-of-fact kind of reporting that was expected. And I remember once, um, when, uh, the ex- sometimes when we do mindfulness practice, the experience of impermanence becomes very, very strong. Things, you see things arising and passing away. And I had the experience, you know, just I'd, I'd, I'd bring my attention, my my awareness on a particular object, as soon as I did that, it would vanish. And at some point, I had this experience that it, um, uh, it wasn't simply I was glancing at something, but I was, every time something arose, I would look at it with love. And the love would just kind of dissolve it back into love or something. And it was just really a delight to sit there with this, you know, just day after day with all this love kind of loving everything that arose and seeing it all dissolved back into love and it was just great. And I remember telling a friend of mine who was at, the, at that retreat about this experience and he kind of agreed with me, oh, you shouldn't go tell your te- the teacher about that. <laughs> I was maybe indulging too much or I don't know what. And, uh, but I, I, didn't get the imp- I, didn't, I didn't get the message from my teacher that loving-kindness and joy was actually, you know, intimate part of the path. Even though I knew that he was teaching loving-kindness to other people uh, in a very systematic way, he was teaching people metta meditation, but uh, he was, uh, there was no indication he was going to teach me that. And uh, so I thought it was kind of like a secret, this thing about love and loving-kindness and joy and joy. And then I remember kind of coming back here to America and sitting long retreats here in America. I remember once, um, some, some of you might have been at Barry, and there's a walking hall in front of the meditation hall, and walking back and forth, and feeling all this joy arise, and knowing that there are um, better places than joy in meditation. And so knowing that, kind of deeper places, Knowing that, I thought the joy was a problem. 
<laughs> and then I would, you know, I would I'd do a walking meditation, trying to repress the joy, kind of hold it down. <laughs> I mean, can you believe it? <laughs> and uh, and I try, you know, trying really hard to keep the joy down, and I just ended up with a headache. And uh, then finally, I kind of kind of gave into it. And then uh, once it, once I kind of let myself go into it fully, actually, and it passed pretty quickly, and I was able to settle to what's considered to be a little bit deeper place. But I think that joy and experiences of love, loving kindness, friend, friendliness, very powerful states of friendliness, um, at times become an intimate part of the practice. And... Um, I say at times because uh, we can't always expect that. Uh, it, you know, things change. We have our own in- unique individual personal path in the midst of the path of mindfulness and loving kindness. And, and we don't know how things are going to evolve and change and what the sequence of opening might be for us. And, um, but at some point or other, uh, I think most of us at some point will feel kind of a softening of the heart a tenderness towards ourselves and to the world around us, which translates into uh, metta, uh, uh, loving kindness, sometimes translates into joy, it's feeling joy and the joy of others. And sometimes you feel it um, in the form of compassion, feeling, uh, uh, feeling intimately the suffering around, the, around you and wanting to do something to alleviate it or feeling moved to, to alleviate it. And sometimes we feel with the open-heartedness that can happen, the tenderness. That tenderness has a quality of, equ- of being equanimous, great equanimity. And um, so also being, you know, kind of, before I did Vipassana, I kind of stumbled on Vipassana, so I was kind of this diehard Zen student. And so in Zen, they never taught me, certainly, loving-kindness practice. It was more like a samurai spirit of, you know, toughing it out. And, um, and when I came back to practice in America after practicing in Asia, the American teachers taught a lot of loving-kindness. As many of you know, we would, we, on a regular Vipassana retreat, we often teach at least one guided loving-kindness meditation each day. And um, when they first started doing that, on the retreats here in America, I said, you know, what's this? <laughs> This seems too artificial, it seems too, uh, you know, sugary, it seems too... Well, mostly artificial was a feeling. I thought that mindfulness was about just being present for what's there. You don't want to artificially create something, especially something so um, sweet and, you know, sugary or something. It seemed to me, you know, like loving-kindness. What was that? Um, even though I had a lot of experience of it in Asia, I didn't really have the words for it. it just, I just felt like a lot of love and joy. So mostly what I did was um, I tuned my teachers out when they did the loving-kindness exercises. And sometimes I, when I do this, when I now teach loving-kindness on retreats, I tell people, you're welcome to tune me out. If, if, because I kind of expect at least some of you, you know, some people won't, don't want to do it. Like I didn't want to do it. Um, but here, today, everybody's here, I suppose, because they're into it. <laughs> so it's a different group. And so I... Um, but then what happened was that uh, at some point, 
you know, just doing the mindfulness practice in its own course and own time, strong states of uh, loving-kindness would naturally arise. And then when the teachers came in to do the guided loving-kindness meditation, I had a reference for it, and it was really close at hand. And so when they kind of started doing the phrases of loving-kindness, um, it was right there to be awakened or to be evoked. And it became a very wonderful practice. And it didn't feel artificial anymore. It felt like just simply awakening something which was always there and allowing it to grow or develop or become pervasive. And so since that time, I've kind of uh, been in love with loving-kindness practice. I think it's really a great practice. I love loving-kindness practice. I love mindfulness practice. Um, I don't have as much experience with the other Brahma-viharas because they're not taught so much, and my own teachers didn't teach, teach them very much. Um, and um, I want to say that, uh, you know, so I'm in love with all these things, and, and I kind of would like to, sh- one of the reasons I love teaching is I love te- sharing something that I love. And, and sometimes I meet other people who love it, and then you know, it's also quite wonderful. But uh, in saying that, I think we all know how difficult lovers can be. <laughs> So, you know, if, it, if I think if you're realistically engaged <clears throat> in both mindfulness practice and loving-kindness practice, um, you know, it it's, has its trials, too. So I'm happy to be here today, and, um, and I think that uh, f- uh, for many people who are here, who, uh, all of you and for the teachers who are coming and for the staff and for the people who uh, dreamed of this event, the whole event is an expression of um, the Brahma-viharas, an expression of loving-kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity. Um, as I think most of, I think all of you know that uh, the money for this is going to um, the scholarship fund. And we have two scholarship funds. We have a scholarship fund called Mudita, uh, which is Sympathetic Joy, which is uh, to share the practice with other people who are of low income, who can't really afford some of these retreats. That, And then um, the other is the Karuna Scholarship, which is for people, which is com- the word for compassion. And it's for those people who have um, life-threatening illnesses or have... Um, chronic illnesses of some sort, so that uh, they need some help to be able to come and retreat. And, um, and I think the, 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 this very event here is the, the I don't know why you use the word brainchild, the heart, ch- heart child of um, Daniel Barnes, who I suspect has never asked, has anybody knows, has he ever asked for a Karuna scholarship himself? Probably never has, but uh, he's uh, would certainly qualify. He has he's a quadriplegic and uh, has a lot of uh, uh, difficulty with his body, which doesn't seem to cooperate with anything that he, that you know is normal. But uh, he has a lot, you know sits with a lot of pain, and a lot of awkwardness, can can't you know can't walk and doesn't have full use of his arms and. But he's a very active man, and, and uh, he's engaged himself for many years very deeply in this mindfulness practice, and finds great value in it. 
And he's really an exceptional person. It's, uh, I'm, I'm inspired when I'm around him for the way he's used his mindfulness practice to work with his own um, uh, uh, limitations that he has in his life. And in his, busy, in his busy life, much of it sometimes spent uh, in his bed, uh, he has done, uh, he started a business, a uh, very seemingly successful business of training the healthcare workers, emergency, uh, what are they called, the, uh, people, emergency, what are they called, people who go to uh, paramedics, they go to people's homes. In different counties around the Bay Area, has trained them in uh, grief counseling. Because what they found is the paramedics were never trained in grief counseling. And so they didn't know what to do when someone, you know, died or on the, you know, in the field. And often what they did response was they just take them to the hospital, which was very expensive, but also would, uh, wouldn't allow the family the proper grieving environment. If someone dies at home, it's some, often better just leave them at home so the family can be with them and let it sink in and, and for them to say goodbye properly. And so he started this uh, seemingly very successful uh, company that goes around and trains paramedic groups in different counties in this kind of uh, grief work. And, it's, and the paramedics seem to be very happy with this because they feel that now they, have, now, 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 they, now they can do something when someone dies, whereas before they just felt like failures because they were trained just to bring... Um, they were trained to go try to save someone. And when someone died, they felt like they'd failed. But when they were trained in grief work, it, it worked better for them, and it worked a lot better for the family that was left behind. So he's done a, a, a tremendous service to some of the counties in the Bay Area in his, business, his, his work. He's done a lot of great work for um, Spirit Rock, uh, and primarily in recent years with this uh, supporting and running the, um, or not so much running, I guess, but um, um, helping raise money for these uh, scholarships that we have. And um, I think Joan Ward kind of ran the show for many years, the administrating of it. And now re recently she stopped, and now Ernie Isaacs is going to, uh, is running it. So anyway, there's all these people who, so this, I think the very event is an expression of loving kindness and compassion. And it's nice to be here. I believe that uh, the way that we often teach mindfulness, or maybe it's maybe inherent in mindfulness itself, is that mindfulness appears to be a somewhat passive practice, in that it's mostly a receptive practice of allowing things to be and recognizing what's there. However, the very act of leaving ourselves alone, just seeing and being receptive of what's there, is so counter to the way we live our no normal life, when we don't leave ourselves alone. There's a lot of judgment and criticism and planning and scheming and manipulating and all kinds of things. That leaving ourselves alone is actually a very radical thing to do, and just seeing very clearly what we are. And if we do that, if we leave ourselves alone and recognize clearly what's happening in our life, what happens is that um, the superfluous stuff, the anxious stuff that kind of often covers our life, begins settling away because it's not being supported or fueled anymore. And it's almost as if that under all that stuff, there's a, a heart, a heartfulness that uh, is very pure and very uh, beautiful 
and that is um, the source for wonderful emotions like loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. And there's a teaching in Buddhism, in Buddhist psychology, that mindfulness weakens the unwholesome, the unuseful states of mind that might occur to us. At the very same time, that very mindfulness, without manipulating or trying, will strengthen the wholesome aspects of our life. Um, And a lot of it, I think, just comes from the fact we're leaving ourselves alone to let our heart become tender, and a tender heart will respond beautifully to the world around us if we're willing to allow ourselves to be a little bit vulnerable. The word for mindfulness in uh, Pali is sati, and we translate it into English as mindfulness usually. And I don't know, maybe it's because of the Western uh, bias towards the mind, we use mindfulness as, uh, there's nothing but mind in the word sati. The Chinese, when they translated the word uh, sati into Chinese, they use these Chinese characters. And the Chinese characters are, uh, for mindfulness is made up of two characters. And the top character is um, made up of the character for the now or the present. And the bottom half of the character is made up of the character for heart. So it's the heart of the present. So that's a different way. You know, I don't know how we want to say that in English. Uh, heartfulness. So I think that just simply the the leaving ourselves alone that happens in mindfulness and the very clear recognition of our life elicits, evokes, develops, cultivates uh, an open heart. And what, and I feel that one of the ways it does that is what we're cultivating in mindfulness practice is a form of awareness that doesn't exclude anything. There's nothing outside the field of awareness. If there's something outside of what, what you feel is appropriate to pay attention to, then you've created a division which will cause suffering and which will limit the possibility of empathy and kindness and friendship to our whole world. And what mindfulness is doing is discovering a kind of awareness with not, where, in which nothing is left outside. And that's kind of uh, maybe a little bit a difficult concept to sometimes to sink in, because it means we don't even leave outside some of the things that we consider to be negative or you know, we don't, undesirable. We don't leave outside um, the, uh, some of the horrible suffering in the world. We don't leave outside our own suffering. We don't leave outside our anger and our depression. But we find some way to hold it all in this all-inclusive awareness. And what you can, what you can do as you do mindfulness practice If you find that you're suffering or feeling some discomfort, ask yourself, is there something that you left outside the field of awareness? But chances are that uh, if you included everything, that uh, the dukkha, the the kind of uh, um, suffering that Buddhism addresses, uh, will not be um, uh, really an issue. So developing an awareness that excludes nothing. So mindfulness, in a sense, is kind of maybe the passive side of practice. And the Brahma-viharas are the active side of practice. 
And uh, just as my teachers in Asia didn't teach them very much, there's sometimes a tendency to give uh, preferential attention to just mindfulness itself. Um, and the Brahma Viharas are about our, our relationship to uh, we have with the world, with ourselves, with our friends. Um, and while it might arise naturally in the context of mindfulness practice, it's also we also have the option of not leaving it to chance, which means that we can actually cultivate it and practice it. Um, and one of the things, one of the values of doing a weekend like this and practicing these uh, is so that we become more familiar with them. And if we're more familiar with them, we can recognize them when they arise in us, because sometimes these things can arise very subtly. And if there's a recognition there, the, the, the function of recognition and mindfulness is to strengthen the wholesome qualities. So if you can recognize your compassion when it's there, your sympathetic joy when it's there, it tends to strengthen those things and they become a bigger part of our life. Also, the Brahma Viharas provide the foundation for a crea- creative, emotional, and also practical response to life. Um, many of many people in our society don't have, don't see a very wide range of ways to respond to the world around them. Some people, some men, you know, seem to get the, seem like the main respo- main kind of message they've gotten growing up is it's best to be aggressive in almost any situation. Some men fear not being aggressive, not being assertive, or being angry. And there's a whole other range of ways to be. A lot of people defend the value of anger in our culture. And uh, I don't want to get into that question now. But um, whether it's useful or not, there's often better responses than anger. And becoming familiar with the four Brahma-viharas is becoming familiar with other possible responses to the world around us. The word vihara means uh, abode, and it's a place where we can dwell. The Brahma vihara is a place where we can rest our life, rest our heart. And the Brahma is, uh, refers to the supreme deity of the Indian, uh, Buddhist Indian pantheon of deities. Some people are surprised to learn that Buddhism has deities, gods, because some people think it's kind of an atheistic religion. The Buddhism has lots of gods, uh, just that uh, Buddhism tends not to think very highly of them. <laughs> they, you, you know, they, you, you kind of feel a little bit sorry for them. They have it pretty good, but... But uh, I think by calling it Brahma, it also means kind of supreme or ultimate. Or Sometimes Brahma, the word Brahma, is just, uh, can almost be translated into English as spiritual, perhaps. You think? Maybe. Um, and these Brahma-viharas, sometimes are trans- there's another Pali word for them. It translates in- into English as the boundless abodes. Uh, the unlimited bones, but the boundless abodes because uh, they help cut through all the divisions, all the, ba- the barriers or boundaries between us and the rest of the world. Um, all the bound divisions we make in the universe. And remember that mindfulness is awakening to a po- possible awareness which is 
doesn't exclude anything, and that sense is kind of a boundless awareness. In the same way, we can develop boundless loving-kindness that also doesn't exclude anything, that includes everything. Boundless compassion and sympathetic joy. These Brahma-viharas, I think it's interesting the way that they're practiced. They are practiced uh, usually by starting with oneself and uh, directing loving-kindness, joy, compassion, equanimity about or towards oneself. Because it's not so much, we're we're not denying ourselves or our qualities in doing this practice, but rather we often start with ourselves, appreciating ourselves, and then from that we universalize, we expand out and universalize that experience. And we don't often, and it's done sequentially, and you first do it to yourself, and then you do it to people who you feel close to, like to benefactors, and to friends, maybe families, people who are kind of, it's going to be easy to do it, you want to do it for. And then you try to develop these things for neutral people, people who kind of don't have any feelings one way or the other for. And then you do it, uh, then you kind of let it, and then you kind of keep universalizing it and you go move it into people who are difficult. And then you even go further into people who are your enemies. And then and once you've kind of done that really well, uh, then you begin doing it kind of blanketly to all, kind of in all kinds of people, all men, all women, all, you know, people in Woodacre, all people in California, all Difficult, all kinds of categories, difficult people, good people, all paramedics. You can send it to them, it's very nice, they probably could use it. All politicians. Um, And one of the paradoxes of Buddhism, I don't think it's a paradox from a Buddhist point of view, but maybe from a Western point of view, is that um, Buddhism talks a lot about no-self. And that teaching of no-self tends to maybe resonate with the kind of Western teachings of self-effacement. And so we get kind of confused about what this teaching of no-self is about. But the paradox is that at the same time that Buddhism teaches about no-self, it also teaches that one one of the very virtuous things you can do, one of the very useful things you can do, is to rejoice in your own good qualities. And I think for some people in the West, rejoicing your own good qualities seems like an odd thing to do. It maybe even seems kind of egotistical. You're supposed to kind of be humble and not really, you know, rejoice in your own qualities. But rejoicing your own good qualities is considered to be a very useful thing to do in Buddhist practice. So we start with ourselves. And a distinction can be made between and, and, and the Buddhist path, I think, is a very emotional path. Many Westerners, when they first had contact with Buddhism, thought that it was a very dry, unemotional, austere, ascetic, world-renouncing path. And if you read some of the books about Buddhism from a hundred years ago, that's kind of the impression you got. And who wants to be part of that? But if you do Buddhist practice, you see it's actually a practice which is, um, I think, involves a lot of emotion, and I would say even passion at times. Um, there's words that can be translated as some of our definitions of passion. The word like samvega 
could be the passion or zeal for practice. Um, and and as we practice, I think it becomes it becomes emotional. The emotions become very very strong. Um, loving kindness becomes strong. Joy becomes strong, and equanimity, which is a, a very powerful emotion, I would say, um, also becomes very powerful. The more we do this practice. And the distinction maybe can be made between self-centered emotions and connecting emotions. And the emotions which tend to cause problems are, are those which um, are self-centered. We have, really have to do with us being self-centered. And we're self-centered, the way I'm using the word now, it tends to um, uh, lessen the, our intimate connection with others around us. And then there are emotions which are connecting emotions, which allow us to develop more intimacy and, and, uh, and uh, wholesome connection with the world around us. And so loving kindness, sympathetic joy, compassion, equanimity are such emotions. So there's four of us who are going to teach these four foundations of mindfulness. And uh, this afternoon, Sylvia is going to come and to do compassion. No, she's going to do equanimity. And then tomorrow uh, morning, Joanna Macy is going to do sympathetic joy. And then in the afternoon, Jack's going to come and do compassion. And uh, there was someone who was concerned about the order being messed up. <laughs> and, uh, and maybe it was, you know, maybe it's messed up, but who's to say what the order is? Um, I mentioned this to Jack yesterday, and he said, oh, but you know, the Buddha, he almost never taught all four of these together. He just taught them each of them separately. So who knows what order it's supposed to be in? Um, there is a kind of logic that starts with loving kindness and develops and goes, ends in equanimity. But uh, you know, we're, human minds are so wonderful. You can always find logic for almost anything we do. <laughs> so I'm sure, you know, if I thought for a moment, I could create the right logic for why we're doing the sequence we are today. But the real logic is that uh, Sylvia couldn't agree to do. <laughs> this afternoon, and it couldn't, and so there was a switch. Uh, So she could still make it. Um, And um, also, you should point out, since, you know, we don't want to take this thing about the the order too dogmatically, be kind of religious religious fundamentalists about the order, it's... uh, it's, uh, most uh, scholars who study this kinds of stuff and uh, feel or think or conclude that these Brahma-viharas um, uh, were originally not Buddhist. They're pre-Buddhist. And they're just part of the Indian religious environment. And so the Buddha just, you know, he, Buddha didn't invent a religion out of nothing. Uh, he just incorporated many, many elements from the religion of his time. And the religion of his times of all, you know, most of them kind of kind of more or less kind of faded away, maybe, or something had changed enough. So, but, so a lot of things survived mostly in Buddhism. And so we think, oh, it's Buddhism. It's just good sense. <laughs> you 
you know, it's just, you know, so, so it's not a particularly Buddhist thing, the Brahma Viharas, so. In uh, many of you know that in Theravadan Buddhism, the, uh, the, the preeminent emotion that's cultivated in practice is loving-kindness. And you can go to, to, to Thailand and Southeast Asia, and there are uh, monks and nuns there who specialize in practicing loving-kindness. And they're known for the field of loving-kindness that's around them. And people will go on pilgrimage to them just because of their loving-kindness. Isn't that great? You have cultural heroes who, because they're, they have so much loving-kindness, Maybe a little bit different than the cultural heroes that we have. Um, and in Mahayana Buddhism, the preeminent, preeminent emotion or attitude is that of compassion. And, um, and so I don't want to compare, you know, what's, you know, which one's better. I don't, it doesn't make any sense to me to talk about that. They're just two different ways, em- emphasis is where people begin. Um, but part of the reason in Theravadan Buddhism, I believe, that loving-kindness is preeminent, is taught first and taught so much, is that um, loving-kindness is the foundation for the other three Brahma-viharas. That what loving-kindness is, is a open-hearted, um, uh, an open-heartedness to the world around us. It's an open-hearted uh, wish of uh, well-wishing, wishing others to be well and to be happy, wishing ourselves to be happy and wishing others to be happy. That arises out of common kind of open-heartedness. The other three are the, re- are the responses of this open-hearted loving-kindness to different conditions in the world. So we cultivate loving-kindness as a foundation, and then when loving-kindness, this open-heartedness, meets different situations, it takes the form of sympathetic joy, compassion, and equanimity. So when, when, we, when, when we're in the presence of someone who has a lot of joy and happiness, has succeeded in something, then uh, the open-hearted and loving-kind kind of response is to share in their joy. If we feel envious in their joy and their success, then the heart is kind of closed. But if we're unenvious, then an open hearted will share in that joy and that delight. Uh, if we meet the suffering of someone else, then um, I think the open hearted response is to feel somehow empathetically that suffering and then to naturally want to um, wish that person uh, to be alleviated from their suffering. Or wish to do something about it. So, loving-kindness is kind of often considered a foundation. Um, in Mahayana, the compassion is often con- is a preeminent emotion because um, compassion is, the, is a very strong motivating factor in our practice. That it's a lot... If you really feel compassion for the world and for suffering your world, um, it's a lot easier to sustain a spiritual practice, a Buddhist practice, for a whole lifetime or for lifetimes. That if you're not doing it for others, if, you're not, if your practice isn't for others, which it often isn't is for the first... It, it, often when people first start practicing, 
we just do it for ourselves. If we're kind of having a hard time, you want some help, or it's kind of so we do it for more personal reasons, and that's, I think, quite appropriate. But at some point, if you're doing it only for yourself, I think it's very hard to sustain a religious practice. And the only thing that will sustain it over a whole lifetime is at some point you feel that this practice also has, is you doing it for other people. So because of that, and because the Mahayana are in it for the long haul, they, cult, they, they put a lot of focus on compassion, developing compassion, to keep the motivation going for lifetime after lifetime. However, Sylvia has lately has been saying that equanimity is the foundation for all the others. And, uh, and, uh, and she's all kind of, you know, you know Sylvia, she gets all enthusiastic. And so she's all enthusiastic about equanimity being the, the source of them all. And she called me first and said, well, I switch with her because, and then she said, well, yeah, equanimity should be first after all. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and I couldn't switch. But uh, I think she has, there's some truth to, what, to her, what she's saying. And, this, and, the fact, and, the, and that equanimity is what arises very much out of mindfulness practice. And equanimity is this kind of uh, willingness to keep the heart open um, without letting the heart kind of uh, hook on to different things that go through it or get attached to different things that go through it or close off to different things that go through it. Equanimity is that smooth evenness that receives everything without, maybe if I, this is tried to say it this way, but maybe it gives the idea, it's kind of like equanimity is like having a Teflon heart. <laughs> Not that, you know, things slide off exactly, but, uh, but um, you can receive everything fully, completely and intimately, but there's no uh, fear or aversion or attachment where any of that stuff hold, you know, becomes a problem. So equanimity is very important. The more equanimity we have, the more open, open-mindedness we have. I think that naturally the other emotions will arise. But you'll have to hear what Sylvia has to say this afternoon. Someone who is unknown wrote, We live in a world torn between wanting to listen to the sound of a flower growing and wanting to ignore the sound of the sky falling. By sometimes being sensitive to the first process, we acquire the energy necessary to prevent the second. So we cultivate loving kindness, mindfulness, and as we do that, uh, we also cultivate the capacity to feel compassion and be present to be witnesses for the sky falling in the world. Maybe they just feel like I'm talking too much. So let's, maybe we, st- uh, we should soon start with some uh, practice. Um, but before we do that, uh, I haven't really characterized my, uh, loving kindness so well. So I'd, I'd like to ask you all, some of you have uh, done a fair amount or a lot of mindfulness practice. I would like to hear from a few of you, is how would you characterize mindfulness practice?
thinking that uh, if a number of you answer, you will get a lot of number of different angles on the same thing. Um, yes. Uh, a lot of times in in meditation practice, it's really easy to be very hard on yourself. You know, oh, I had to move. Oh, darn, I screwed up. Or I'm not as good as the person sitting over there. And I find that um, metta practice often helps me counteract that. You know, I. Um, I try to always cultivate love and kindness toward myself, and that, that helps me to, um, it actually enhances my practice a whole lot mm. because I'm not always beating myself up anymore. Beautiful. So it's a wonderful antidote to being self-critical. Yeah. Yes? I think of it in terms of words that would be like soft, unfolded. Uh-huh. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. I tend to to keep going back and saying that it should be mindlessness practice. I feel like I'm taking my mind out of my experience, the part of my mind that, that categorizes or judges or critiques or compares, and I'm just experiencing what it is that is. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, nice also. Certain parts of a superficial mind gets in the way, and if that superficial mind can be put to rest, we start, we're not in the way so much. And uh, I think mindfulness practice is, is more of a, uh, it's, an, it's, a, it's a knowing through sensing rather than knowing through knowledge and through ideas. And if you're in sensing, where do you sense? You sense in your body. And if you're sensing in your body, there's a whole different relationship we have with the world. Yes? Um, For me, metta practice is developing a habit that I carry with me when I'm not in my mindfulness Mm. practice. It um, creates a habit in which when I feel in tension with other people, something different will arise. There's a new habit cultivated in my relationships with other people. Mm. I'm getting it better and better. Wonderful. So it's, it's cultivating a wonderful habit, she says. Thank you. Yes? Internally, I feel more spacious. And I'm, I'm trying to put it in a literal sense but it, it, internally I just feel like there's more capacity for life to be the way it is um, and my hunch is that's because I'm not as grasping or as resistant no. letting life be the way it is I think one of the things that metta involves is uh, understanding our life in a wider context so that uh, if we're kind of caught in our own little self-centered world it's very easy to be self-critical and, and also be very judgmental of other people then. But as we become aware of, that our life exists in a much wider context, a universal context, social context, that um, uh, we tend to be a lot more forgiving and kind to ourselves because we're just one little, wonderful, unique piece of a huge event, huge, harmonious event.
Yes. Yes, I think uh, loving kindness gives me, anyway, particularly that practical sense of being connected that, that you kind of alluded to a bit about. One can really see through this practice um, how you're connected with even the tiny little bits of soil and <coughs> garden and plants and, and <coughs> as well as mm. human beings and all kinds of things. Uh-huh. Thank you. So it's, uh, this practice uh, helps con- uh, make a connection with uh, the full world and all the beings in the world. Yeah. Metta practice often feels to me like uh, giving myself and others uh, a warm bath and a gentle touching and being uh, more aware of the fragile and vulnerable nature of myself and others and touching and giving warmth to that. Beautiful. Thank you. So last one. Yeah. I have to make room in my body for metta, for loving kindness. And when I talk about my body, I remind myself I also need my head. (laughs) (laughs) Good. And nothing's excluded, remember. (laughs) Okay, so let's uh, sit now. Rather intimate. (laughs) So take um, a few deep breaths, closing your eyes. And it's nice at the beginning of a sitting to take these deep breaths and use the exhalation to settle into your body. And then breathing normally, just feel your body 
the way your body presents itself to you right now. Feeling your body arise out of your seat, out of your cushion, upright in the air. And then also you can scan through your body. And if there are any muscles, kind of larger muscles, which are easy to relax, you can soften them. Sometimes you can start with your forehead, softening and relaxing. The eyes. And if it's easy, you can soften the jaw. And if it's simple to do so, you can soften and relax the shoulders, allowing them to be. And sometimes it's possible to relax the stomach and the abdomen. And then sit here, feeling the stillness of the body and within the body as part of the body, become aware of your breathing. And for the next little while, maintain a connection between your awareness and your breath, allowing your breath to move across, to move into your awareness.
letting go of your thoughts and concerns, maintaining the connection between awareness and the breath, the connection of the breath with the body, Allowing the breath to be just the way it is. And as you sense and feel the breath in your body, you feel the breath, the breathing, more deep inside your body or more in the surface. Do you feel more connected with either the in-breath or the out-breath? Or are you evenly connected with both? So while we're waiting for people to come in, I'll start informally again, warm up to the formal part. Um, I was struck by, I think it was, I guess, Virginia, who talked about um, using her name so she can really kind of, uh, I guess, see herself properly or fully enough to, get, to give herself loving kindness. And I think that um, learning to see ourselves clearly or bring our full attention to ourselves is very important. That uh, often, for a lot of people, what, what we suffer from is, uh, in a kind of more basic way, is um, we suffer from lack of attention. And sometimes just bringing attention to ourselves is a big part of the necessary... Um, coming to wholeness or healing that might have to happen. So I, I wanted to read um, a few quotes that I had. Many of you know that uh, the liturgy for the Spirit Rock is quotes. <laughs> so <laughs> I have brought... That some, you know, sometime we'll, we'll collect them all and then we'll have a liturgy book and in two, three hundred years we'll just kind of be reading them together and chanting them and singing them and we're still at the formative stage here. I was neurotic for years. I was anxious and depressed and selfish. Everyone kept telling me to change. I resented them. And I agreed with them, and I wanted to change. 
but simply couldn't, no matter how hard I tried. What hurt the most was that, like the others, my best friend kept insisting that I change. So I felt powerless and trapped. Then one day, another friend said to me, Don't change. I love you just as you are. Those words were music to my ears. Don't change, don't change, don't change. I love you as you are. I relaxed, I came alive, and suddenly I changed. <laughs> now I know that I couldn't really change until I found someone who would love me whether I changed or not. Now, what I'd like to add to this is that uh, one of those someones can be ourselves. And that I think, especially as adults, you know, I don't know so much about psychology, I shouldn't speak things that kind of border on that subject, perhaps, but um, a lot of people as children weren't, um, didn't get enough attention, weren't seen properly or fully, were disrespected. And so there's a kind of a lack, perhaps, uh, of really fully being seen. And they've carried that with them into, a, into adulthood. And sometimes we keep wanting to be seen then from other people. And we want to kind of fill that need. And to some degree, we should maybe fill that need uh, with friends. But I think fundamentally and basically as adults, we have to do it for ourselves. We have to see ourselves fully. We have to put ourselves in the middle of that need and really fully see ourselves. And so Virginia talking about using her name as a way of really acknowledging herself. I think that sounded really right to me. And learning to see ourselves, accept ourselves, not need to have to change, but simply see who we are, and then um, offer ourselves our own loving kindness. And if we can't offer it, you know, the feeling of it, just simply the intention. Uh, because the intention is really what's most precious. Uh, and the thing that you, we, should, we should most... Uh, cultivate and safeguard is really our intention, our intention to be awake, our intention to be compassionate, our intention to be compassionate, to be loving, to be loving. That's what's really going to bear fruit over uh, your lifetime. And cultivating that intention and strengthening it and finding ways of strengthening it is much more important than actually having loving kindness, I feel. there are people who can have loving-kindness, feelings of like loving-kindness very easily. And, and then there's people who, for who it's very hard to have feelings of loving-kindness, but, but who, at the same time, it's difficult, keep cultivating the intention, giving the intention a chance to kind of be reawoken or re-inspired or just be re- reminded of it. And those people who cultivate the intention in the long term can benefit from loving-kindness much more for than the people who necessarily have an easy time evoking feelings of loving-kindness. But it's difficult sometimes to offer loving-kindness to ourselves. So there's a poem by uh, Robinson Jeffers called Love the Wild Swan. And there's a piece of it that goes, Does it ma- matter whether you hate yourself. At least love your eyes that can see, your mind that can hear the music, the thunder of the wind. Love the wild swan. So maybe, you know, we have, a lot of us have a lot of self-criticism and self-hate. 
but can we at least love that part of us which is aware of the self-criticism, aware of our eyes, aware of the heart that holds the pain. And the time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life and whom you ignored for another. Who knows you by heart? Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. I think in part loving-kindness, the possibility of feeling loving-kindness or the intention of it is something which is very close at hand. And sometimes it only takes not changing the situation, but just simply changing our perspective we have on the situation. Um, uh, Seeing uh, ourselves in a different light, seeing other people in a different light, seeing ourselves as maybe one human among How many are we now? Five billion or two billion or many billion? One among many sometimes. For some people it can be overwhelming to have that image, feel like ants. But for some people uh, it can be really inspiring because you don't take yourself quite as serious. But you're part of this wonderful phenomena of uh, human beings which exist on this earth. And uh, as one of many, it's easy often to have kindness or feel compassion towards the other, all the others, but not in this direction. But if you feel like you're one of those many others, just one, one of the many kinds of others, then um, it's sometimes a little bit easier to have it for oneself. So I'd like to ask you another question, uh, especially since I think many of you have spent some time practicing loving kindness and reflecting on it. What opportunities do you have for developing loving-kindness in your daily life? Yes. I try to remember to say the phrases between the parking lot by Park and when I get to the building where all the people are. <laughs> Beautiful. Yes. Um, I realized actually this summer uh, I have a lot of work stress. My work is very stressful and it has been for a while and I've been really working, trying for the last few years to reduce the stress. And I found myself being very judgmental this year. I've done so much work to reduce my work stress and I haven't reduced it. Uh-huh. And then it hit me. I don't have power to change how much stress is in me. I can do things, but I can't change that directly, Uh changing the channels. But I do have power to change what I bring to myself Uh in that process. 
And so I shifted from thinking judgment to thinking that's what's in myself. Ah. And now when I notice self-judgment, <coughs> I realize that that's where my choice is. And what I Fantastic. So what she realized was that uh, she, she has a lot of stress, work stress, and she was trying to alleviate it. But she, uh, she realized it was very hard to alleviate the work stress. And that she maybe doesn't have so much choice over the stress, the external stress. But she has a lot of choice in how she relates to it. So rather than being critical about ourselves in the situation, she can offer yourself and the situation loving kindness. So that's the opportunity. And that's a, that's a very wise statement that uh, really the, the crux of a lot of practice is about how we relate to situation, not the situation. So you see another way of relating. Yes? Oh, I love it. Do you have any phrases you say? I say all of them. I say, may I be Oh, I love it. And Uh-huh. <laughs> That's beautiful. I shouldn't say anything, add, add, add anything to it, but, but uh, just to kind of maybe slightly affirm what you did. In monastic Buddhism, in many countries in Asia, uh, the monks and nuns have all these little, what's called gathas, these little verses they say. Um, and they say it for all the little details of daily life to kind of remind them of many things, of practice, of their Buddha nature, of loving-kindness. And, um, and they have, there's a gatha, there's a verse to be said when you wash your face. And I don't remember it, but, uh, but you're doing, you know, a tr- very traditional monastic activity. <laughs> Thank you. Yes? Beautiful. So one of the things that requires is giving yourself the time to do that. And I mean, so many of us are in such a rush. But you have to give yourself the time. But it doesn't take much, but you have to give yourself the time. And I think it's so important to give yourself just a little bit of time. As you said, it doesn't take much. But take, give yourself just a little bit of chance. Give yourself half a chance to have loving kindness or be present. I love driving to one day one day sittings like like today I was driving here, and I, I should maybe you know it's a little bit embarrassing to admit this, but I guess I tend to drive probably a little bit faster than I should. But for some reason, whenever I come to do a teaching event, um, I don't listen to the radio, and I, I inevitably will drive like the slowest not the slow but the slowest person. Everybody's passing me. I'm in the, the slow lane, and I'm just driving very mindful and very content, and I just love it. It's one of my favorite driving times is to drive to these events. And uh, I just give myself the chance. I should do it, do it more often, give myself that opportunity. Yeah. I have a preschooler, and 
I get such immediate feedback from him when I'm responding to him or acting towards him in a way that is not in loving kindness. And when I am, you know, if he's got some fuss going on about something or other, and I remember that all he really wants to do is be happy, and I find a way to express to him that care for him and, and give him opportunity to move to that place, he's, he responds mm. just immediately. And if I'm not, I get it right back in my face. <laughs> so fast. Could you hear that? That uh, he has this, she has this preschooler who uh, is her feedback loop of how she is. And if, if she uh, doesn't have loving kindness to him, then he lets her know. And uh, she often remembers that when things are difficult, that he wants to be happy, just like everybody else. And then you can, it's easier to bring loving kindness, and he responds directly to that. Right? Everybody wants to be happy. Yeah. I find that when I'm angry at someone, and I start obsessing in my head, going over all the ways that I'm, I'm right and they're wrong, if I can switch and do some meta towards them, that it makes me feel better and stops the obsession. Ah, I find the same thing. And also what happens also is for me is that um, he, what he said was that if he's obsessing and angry with someone, if he can stop and do some loving kindness, it makes him feel a lot better. Right? And, uh, and so I was going to add that uh, I do the same thing. But what I find is that the des- decisions I make about how to respond to situation tends to be much more realistic if I uh, have done a little bit of loving kindness or take a little break rather than deciding in the midst of my fury. So I actually use anger as a cue that now is not the time to make a decision. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.